Hello, and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? These are words of Jesus from John chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Please be seated. John Bradford was a law student in London, and he came to faith in Christ and switched from being a law student to studying theology at Cambridge. He graduated, he was ordained in 1550 as a chaplain, like a pastor, and that was during the reign of the boy king, Edward VI. Now, Edward was a devout Protestant, and once chaplain John Bradford, um, he was watching as a procession of prisoners were heading to their execution, and he, he coined the famous phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. That's from John Bradford. Almost 20 years earlier, the famous King Henry VIII, you guys know about King Henry VIII, and he uh, had broken with the Catholic Church. He became the head of the Church of England, but he actually didn't change that much because he had some years earlier been designated by the Pope as the defender of the faith. He'd written or co-authored a pamphlet defending uh, the Catholic faith against the Protestants. So his beliefs were basically Catholic, not Protestant, but he changed his religion and rejected the Pope and established the Church of England because the Pope would not annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Probably, in part, because her nephew was Emperor Charles V of Spain, who just happened to be the most powerful, richest person in the world probably right then with the biggest empire and the most money, and he had recently sacked Rome. So it was kind of a non-starter for the Pope. Um, So Henry VIII changed his religion so that he could get rid of Catherine and Mary Anne Boleyn and hopefully get a male heir. When that failed, he got rid of her and he married Jane Seymour and the boy king, Edward VI, is her son, her and Henry VIII's son. Now he'd been raised a Protestant and he was a committed follower of Jesus and even though he was just a kid, he was making a bunch of Protestant reforms. Clergy were allowed to have wives Yay! (laughs) The Lord's Supper was no longer believed to be the actual body and blood of Christ, and the worship for the first time took place in English and not in Latin. But Edward was sickly, and he died at age 15. Anybody age 15? There you go. Now, even though he tried to make sure that the monarch that would come after him would be Protestant, there was a power struggle, and Mary, who was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, she became the queen, and she was a staunch Catholic. 
So she restored the Catholic Church and she killed hundreds of Protestants who would not recant and become Roman Catholics. And therefore her nickname is? There you go. Bloody Mary. Now John Bradford converted, he was a converted law student turned pastor or chaplain, gave us the phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. He had to decide. Was he going to go back to being a Roman Catholic or was he going to keep to his Protestant faith? Now, Bloody Mary was killing people and there were some clergy who said, no, no, I'll be a Catholic. <laughs> now one time, Bloody, one of Bloody Mary's loyal bishops in the city of Bath, he preached a sermon and in the sermon, he started criticizing the dead boy king and it really ticked people off. Somebody actually threw a knife at him. I just want to pause and thank you. <laughs> and John Bradford, who was a, a popular preacher and pastor, he got up, quieted down the crowd. The, the bishop was afraid they were going to kill him. They missed with a knife. And he quieted him down and he escorted the bishop out who was afraid for his life. Three days later, he was arrested because of his Protestant beliefs. For two years, he lived in, a, in dank English cells, preaching and writing. He was so trusted by his guards that he would give them his word that he'd be back before daylight, and they'd let him go for the evening, and he'd come back before daylight every time. He was an immensely popular preacher, but he was burned at the stake for his reformed Protestant beliefs in 1555. When he got to the stake, he asked people to forgive him if he'd done anything. He forgave the soldiers that were going to burn him at the stake. Then he picked up a stick that was going to burn him, kissed it, and put it back down into the pile. He was tied to the stake with a younger man, and as the flames rose around them, he was heard to say, Brother, be of good comfort, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night, where all our pains will end in peace and our warfare in songs of joy. What would you die for? Jesus said, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know it has hated me before it hated you. If they, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In the Acts of the Apostles, the Apostle James, the brother of John, he's one of the first ones to die. He's beheaded by Herod. There, it looks like they're going to do the same thing to Peter. He's shackled between guards in a closed prison. An angel comes and rescues him temporarily. Years later, he will be martyred, crucified upside down near Rome. Before all of that, in Acts chapter 5, the Jewish religious leaders, they have the apostles beaten. And they tell them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. They don't stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And they, as they walk out of the religious leaders' um, presence, they, they go rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus. Now, you need to understand this is dramatically countercultural. In that culture, everybody's heroes were the successful people, the rich people, the powerful people. Nobody who was beaten or scourged or especially crucified was considered worthy of any kind of honor. And yet they say, worthy to suffer dishonor. Worst of all was if you were crucified. But the early church developed a strong theology of the honor and privilege of suffering and even dying for Jesus. 
In Revelation, the message to the church in Smyrna includes, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Martyrs became the heroes of the early church. Periodically, for the first several hundred years of Christianity, up until Constantine converted at at year 312, periodically the empire would persecute Christians and kill some of them, and some of them thought it was such an honor to be martyred, they would actually go and turn themselves into the authorities and say, I'm a Christian, kill me. Are Christian martyrs heroic to you? Would you rejoice to be counted worthy to suffer for Jesus? Would you deny your beliefs and change religions to save your life? Henry VIII changed so that he could marry somebody else and hopefully have a son. While Bloody Mary reigned, many Protestants said, okay, I'll be a Catholic. John Bradford refused to recant his Protestant beliefs even though it meant imprisonment and being burned alive. Now, during the Reformation in period in England, that's about 1517 when um, Luther nails the, his theses on the Wittenberg door. And it goes for almost 150 years to about 1662 is kind of the end in England. England is the most complicated. The most weird groups develop. The mo- and it goes back and forth. One year you're killed for being a Protestant, then another year you're killed for being a Catholic. Bloody Mary kills Protestants. Protestant Protestant Queen Elizabeth tries to be moderate and keep everybody happy, but when Rome sends some Catholic priests, she has them killed. She has a long, stable reign, politically and economically beneficial, but she is succeeded by some weaker kings, and the Protestants start thinking that one king might be a closet Catholic, and they rebel. And there is civil war in England in the 1640s. And finally, the, the, the rebels win, and they behead Charles I, unheard of. It becomes a commonwealth. It doesn't work out well. And Puritan Oliver Cromwell becomes the Lord Protector. But when he dies, his son is a failure as his successor. Things are in a mess, so the people bring back Charles II. They restore the monarchy, and they restore the Church of England. There's a backlash against the Puritans and their strictness. There's an act of uniformity is passed in which if you're going to be a pastor or a priest, you've got to agree you're going to do things their way and believe their way. And 2,000 pastors refuse and are ejected from the church. And some are imprisoned, some are killed. This is now Protestants killing Protestants and imprisoning them. It's during this period that John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, this is my old copy that I've had for many years. I also have a big illustrated copy. He's in prison for 12 years, John Bunyan. And what, I'm going to read to you one of my favorite passages in Pilgrim's Progress, and I highly recommend that you read it and reread it. And you can get it in a modern version if you don't like the old English. It's, all, it's over 300 years ago. Um, it's been popular partly because it makes fun of people. All the what it is is an allegory where the main character Christian is walking along on a journey to the celestial city and people talk with him on the way and he gives them names which are indicative of their character. And one of my favorites is a man called by ends. In other words, he, he makes something happen by whatever ends he needs to, by ends. And this is what 
by Inns, who personifying religion says, one of my favorites, "'Tis true, we somewhat differ in religion from those of the stricter sort, yet but in two small points. First, we never strive against wind and tide. Secondly, we are, almost, we are always most zealous when religion goes in his silver slippers. We love much to walk with him in the street if the sun shines and the people applaud him." What would you have done if you'd lived in England during the Reformation period? Would you have gone to prison like John Bunyan, or would you be like buy-ins and kind of make sure you don't go against the cultural tide? Now, there are probably people in this room whose ancestors came to the United States during the Reformation period. Do you know what you believe? Do you know what it's based on in the scriptures? Are any of your beliefs so important to you that you, you die rather than recant? Are your heroes athletes and singers and movie stars? Or are your heroes Christian martyrs? Jesus said they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Now the early church, the early Christian church existed as a small minority in a huge pagan empire. Eventually, many years after Emperor Constantine converts in 312, religious tolerance goes out the window. Almost every kingdom from that point on has a state religion where, where if you're of a different religion, you're penalized. So during the Reformation period, over a thousand years later, Everyone assumes that the religion of the king will be the religion of the country, of everybody, and it will be one unified state religion with very little exceptions. You see how different that is from early Christianity? How different that is from our reality today? For them, so much was at stake with how this came out. And it indirectly creates the United States of America. Let me explain. Now, at the beginning, the Protestants were less violent. Martin Luther and John Calvin, Martin Luther, when the Peasants' War happened in the 1520s and thousands of peasants died, he came in saying, you are not to rebel violently, you are to obey the king and the prince and so forth, and Calvin said similar stuff. Um, John, so remember, France at this time in the beginning is a very Catholic country, and it's the early years of the Reformation, they happened mostly in Germany, but not France, not England, never Spain or Italy. Um, John Calvin is a brilliant Frenchman that we owe a lot to, a lot of theology to. He leaves France and he lives in Geneva and he trains a whole bunch of Frenchmen. And they all go back to France. And in the 1550s, they plant hundreds of Protestant churches. It's this huge explosion. Among the illiterate rural people that work the land, about 10% become Protestants. It's more popular in the cities where people are more literate. But the amazing statistic that I didn't know until I started studying this year is 50% of the nobility become Protestants. Now, if you're aware of how feudal societies worked, it didn't matter what the peasants thought. 
the nobles had the armies. And so if you were the king, you had to have the nobles behind you. And so there's three main families. There's the Valois. He's the, the royal family. He's the king. And he's got 50 of his nobles on one side and 50 on the other. He's trying to hold things together by being moderate. You've got the Guy family, which is staunch Catholic. And then you've got the Bourbon family, which is staunch Protestant. And it's basically a Catholic country, except the nobles are split 50-50. But the, and then from 1562 to um, 1598, about 36 years, they have eight wars within the country of nobles against nobles with their little armies. Eight wars. But the turning point actually comes after about 10 years in 1572. And it's a Romeo and Juliet thing. The heir of the, the Protestant main family, the Bourbon, Henry, he's going to marry one of the princesses of the king's. Of the, of, the, of the Valois family. And so all of the nobles from all sides come to Paris for the wedding. It's a big deal. Everybody's got to come. And as the head of the Bourbon family is walking down the street, he gets shot by an assassin, and it, the bullet comes out of a building owned by the Guy family. But it doesn't kill him. He's wounded. And as he's recovering, the king and the queen come and say, don't worry, we'll make sure there's justice. But he swears vengeance. So the king goes back to his council and they decide to preempt him. And on St. Bartholomew's Day, they kill all the Protestant nobles in Paris. The populace, the, which is more Catholic, they go, hey, the king finally manned up. Let's go. Get, and they start killing, they start killing uh, Protestants. 2,000 people die that day. It spreads to other cities. And in the next six weeks, about 3,000 people die. And what happens, all those churches that were planted... Two-thirds of the people revert to Catholicism. The war keeps going on for years, but basically the, the Protestants don't have much of a chance after that. Except that the king is having some trouble with the Catholic family, the Guise, because his heir is the same guy that was in the Romeo and Juliet wedding, Henry Bourbon. He's just the next guy in line. So if he dies, they're going to have a Protestant king, and they can't have that. So they actually make alliances with their arch enemy, the king of Spain, because the religion is much more important to them than the politics. And then they get crosswise with each other, and the king of France is assassinated, and everything is in turmoil, because the guy that's next in line is Protestant, until finally he converts to Catholicism, the wars of religion in France end, and from then on, it's a Catholic country with a small minority of Huguenot. During this time, earlier on, one of, the, one of Calvin's disciples figures that God couldn't possibly want the, the Catholics to win and people not to ever understand in France that they were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, that it couldn't, they, God couldn't want them to just roll over and win. And he develops a theology of violent resistance to tyranny. It's a huge departure from the whole view that people have had for centuries of divine rule. You support the king, good or bad, that's your, that's your duty. He actually said that Protestant followers of Jesus are obligated to take up arms against tyranny. And most people do not realize that it was the Protestant preachers 
preaching that theology from a, inherited from a disciple of Calvin in colonial America that were instrumental in preparing the way for the American Revolution. In many ways, it created America. During the Reformation period, around 100,000 people died because of religion in England. In France, during the wars of religion, about 2 million. But the worst would be the Thirty Years' War, which went from 1618 to 1648, mostly in modern-day Germany, not in France. Most of the European countries, though, they sent people or they sent money. Mercenaries from all over came, and everybody was going back and forth in Germany over and over for 30 years. At first, the Catholics were winning, and everybody was going to have to become Catholic. Then the king of Sweden invaded, and he got an even bigger army. At one point, his army was 170,000 soldiers and about four times that many or five times that many of camp followers. So it was like a moving town of 800,000 people living off the land and destroying things. One city, 98% of the people died. Over the course of the 30 years, they figure seven or eight million people died until the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. Why should you care? Well, historians put the Peace of Westphalia, 1648, the end of the Thirty Years' War, as the demarcation into the modern era where we are. It politically shaped Europe, and it shaped, shaped diplomacy, and never again will Western powers fight primarily motivated by religion. Now, in other ideologies, they keep fighting about their ideology. You'll know that in the Muslim world, they'll fight for their ideology. In the Hindu world, they'll fight for their ideology. The worst of all was atheist world, which fought for its ideology and actually killed, in the last hundred years, over 80 million of their own people. But in Western civilization, we stopped, fight, we stopped killing people over religion. A few are still willing to die for religion, but none are willing to kill for religion. See, originally Christianity was a persecuted minority religion. But then for over a thousand years, it became the state religion. And both Catholics and Protestants killed to promote their religion. Now again today, in the United States, when we speak of Christians who believe sort of like we do, that we receive salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, we are once again in, in many circles, being treated as a persecuted minority. Not any kind of persecution like during the Reformation period or during the early church. It's very mild in comparison. But if we live for Jesus and speak up for Jesus, some people will find us repugnant. Alan Jacobs is a professor at Baylor University, and he's also an evangelical Christian, which means he believes pretty much like we do. And he wrote a book, and this week in the Wall Street Journal, they published an article that comes sort of out of the book. Now, Jacobs, as an academic, when he hears academics talk about Christians, what he means is criticize Christians, what he always says to himself is, quote, that's not quite right. I don't believe you understand the people you think you're disagreeing with. And then when he hears evangelical Christians talking about academics often, he feels the same way. They don't really understand what those people think. Now, like Professor Jacobs, I know that some of you are academics and brilliant and also evangelicals. For decades as an academic and a Christian, Jacob has tried to get the two sides to understand each other. But what he says is, we treasure our enmities. 
And he uses a term made up by Dr. Susan Harding in the 80s of repugnant cultural other, or RCO. He uses that to describe what keeps us from thinking rationally about those with whom we disagree. For academics, evangelical Christians may be that repugnant cultural other. For, for evangelicals, it, academics might be, did I just say that? Yeah, okay, the opposite. Um, one of the things I like when I, I, I always listen to my uh, messages the next week to see how I can get better, and I'm always missaying something, and I figure, oh, they're smart enough, they'll figure it out. Um, it's good to speak to a smart crowd that can figure out when I make mistakes, um, which is pretty much every week. In politics, in the presidential election in the past 18 months, um, each side often viewed the other and treated the other as repugnant cultural other. Professor Jacob writes about how people cherish their hatred of some RCO and generally will then conclude that that group lacks basic decency. And he says that we can only overcome these deeply embedded biases and errors with great effort. How do we do that? Well, first, think about you. Is there some group that you kind of look down on, that you've been angry with for months, that when you think about them, you get upset? Do you tune into the news channel and you experience outrage because that's what they're going for? How do we keep from becoming constantly angry with whatever our repugnant cultural other group is? Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, shall be liable to the hell of fire. No, we no longer kill people over religion, do we? Except in our hearts. During the last 18 months, how angry have you been with whatever group is your repugnant cultural other? Who have you insulted or called a fool, if only in your own heart? Now, Jesus knew all about repugnant cultural others. He told us what to do. We really have to replace this, we treasure our enmities, has to become we treasure our enemies. And we have to humbly love those who might tend to be our repugnant cultural others until we cherish them. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sunrise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? See, real love, real affection, organic outreach, that's what we must be doing with people that maybe think differently than we do. We can't let our life here lull us into complacency. We can't let their derision or disrespect of us their low opinion of us motivate us to let them become our repugnant cultural other. We can't let them motivate us to leave them alone. If someone were asleep in a burning house, would you leave them alone? If, if you had a medicine that could save somebody dying of some disease and it's free, would you, would you make sure they, they got it? If somebody was just spiteful towards you, but then they're walking off in a fog toward where you know a cliff is, wouldn't you stop them? It doesn't matter how they treat us. God gives us both the rationale and the spiritual power to turn those who might tend to be our repugnant cultural others 
into people we cherish. So whether your tendency is to find people of other religions as repugnant or people of a different political party or other countries or immoral people, you have to stop. Paul writes the following in 1 Corinthians. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you. There but by the grace of God go I. You've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. What do you have that you have not received? In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. In the ancient world, we know that males derided females. You know why? The males got published. We don't know what the females thought because nobody published them. We know that Jews hated Greeks and Greeks hated Jews. We know that slaves were looked down upon by their masters and most of the time the slaves probably hated their masters. These are three groupings of repugnant cultural others. In the ancient world, the only place where there were, where there were supposed to be no repugnant cultural others was in the Christian church. So how do we get rid of the pride and misunderstanding that keeps us from humbly and sincerely loving other people who disagree with us? Well, get to know them, serve them, invest in them, give them some of the thing you value most, which is your time. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you invest in someone, almost always you will find your affection for them growing. Not always, but almost always. When you're with them, pray for God to help you understand why they disagree with you. Pray that you will sincerely love them. Do things with them. Be a friend. I am an evangelical Christian who believes the Bible is reliable, and that puts me at odds with the vast majority of our culture. It makes me the epitome of the repugnant cultural other for my three older sisters. But I'm still their little brother, and they love me. They even like me if I don't talk about Jesus. But I understand why they are not yet followers of Jesus. Not yet. And I don't give up on them. And I do the uncomfortable thing. And I talk, about, talk to them about Jesus. Not in an overly pushy way. But when we get a chance. Mostly just kind of sharing my own stories. I pray for them. I'm not going to give up on them. The cul-de-sac where, where our family lives right now. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. On one side of my house lives a Latter-day Saint. He spontaneously helped me paint my house when I was painting it. I pray for him. He loves it. I love him. We have a great relationship. On the other side of my street is a wonderful man. I love talking with him. We hug. We love each other. He's gay. And then across the cul-de-sac from us is a couple that just love him and like him. And they came to Alpha for the second time this fall. And this week... Because of the concepts brought up in Alpha, I sat at their kitchen table for 45 minutes and we talked about Jesus and the gospel. Best conversation we've ever had about that because of Alpha. 
The Bible says, after listing a bunch of sins, and such were some of you. If not for Jesus, I would have made an absolute mess of my life and anybody who got very close to me. There but for the grace of God go I. It would be the height of pride and foolishness for me to allow my heart to have repugnant cultural others. And even with the people who consider us to be repugnant cultural others, we have to continue to reach out, pray for them, love on them, get to know them, serve them, no matter how they may demean us or even persecute us. Because we are absolutely convinced that Jesus is the only way to get right with God and to be justified by grace, through faith, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And now, some parting words from Pastor Rick. Um, During the Reformation period, Protestants killed Catholics, Catholics killed Protestants, Protestants killed Protestants. There were even some Catholics who killed Catholics in times when they ganged up on each other, making uh, common cause with people who disagreed. About 10 million people died. Aren't we glad we don't kill people over religion anymore in the West? But we don't want to kill them in our hearts either. We need to be sure that we haven't just transferred that to our hearts and we're constantly angry or looking down on people or feeling not remembering that there but for the grace of God go I. So may God fill you with his spirit that you may have all the power you need both to discern who perhaps you're not loving well and then have all the power to love them well and to see in them the image of God that you might serve them, that you might actually be used by God to break through. God bless you. Go in the power of the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.